Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. If you garden, you know fall is a great time to plant perennials and plan new beds for next year. Are native plants on your list? Ecologist Dr. Doug Tallamy hopes so. Coming up, Tallamy joins us to explain how to turn your yard into what he calls a homegrown national park. We know our planet is in trouble, but Tallamy says you can make changes in your yard to restore the ecosystems we depend on. The key is changing the way we landscape to help insects and birds, both on the decline. Today, where we live, we confront America's obsession with manicured green lawns. Do you have questions about what to plant where you live? You can join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Now, one way to think deliberately about helping the ecosystem is to have a pollinator pathway. Joining us now on Zoom is Donna Merrill. She's a Wilton resident, founder of Pollinator Pathways Northeast, a movement to coordinate contiguous stretches of pollinator-friendly habitats. Donna, welcome to our show. Good morning. I'm so happy to be here. I understand this initiative launched in 2017, and now uh, more than 200 towns across the Northeast have joined this pathway. So how did you start the program in Connecticut, Donna? Um, Yeah, it's an interesting story. I come out of the land trust world, and uh, land trusts in Connecticut are a little bit odd, uh, different than the rest of the country, in that each land trust is only works within their individual town. So in Connecticut, for example, there are 169 towns and 137 individual land trusts, none of which ever used to talk to one another. So uh, one thing that had started uh, just north of us in Massachusetts was uh, partnerships where land trusts could get together and collaborate. And we started a uh, regional conservation partnership in Fairfield County, where land trust leaders uh, across the 23 towns would get together and, you know, just chat about uh, successes and what they were up to. And this went on for a few years and we decided, well, we got to do something and time to take some action. So we applied for a grant from the U.S. Forest Service. And this is something called a, a redesign grant. And basically, what it was they were asking us to do was um, they they knew how to deal with the huge forest tracts in northern Maine and how to work with private property owners that had hundreds of acres, but they had no clue how to engage landowners in suburbia uh, in our urban cities and in the exurb. So they, they said, we want you to try different methods to engage landowners. So we uh, started out trying to invite people from across town borders to uh, participate in uh, forums just to talk about 
you know, what they cared about, the woodpeckers or whatever it was they saw outside their, their kitchen window. And um, it, it, it seemed from the outside looking in after a year of doing this across Fairfield County um, and Westchester County, we had partnered with Westchester Land Trust, pretty much of a flock. We'd send out 700 invitations and have maybe five people show up. And um, at first I was really disheartened, but then I thought, well, wait a minute. It's not the numbers of people, it's the right people that are coming. So I compiled a bunch of lists of names and probably ended up with 30 or 35 people uh, from one side of our county to the, the next. And uh, it finally came down to, well, what are we going to do? So a handful of us were charged with coming up with ideas to uh, implement, to engage landowners. And <laughs> I felt like I was back in college trying to figure out what to write my next uh, English essay on. But I'm sitting at my dining room table thinking, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? And I was reading a nature magazine and I read about three sentences about a woman who uh, started something called the Bee Highway, uh, which was a way to help bees get from one side of Oslo to the other by asking people in apartment buildings to put planters of plants on their uh, balconies and asking companies to put roof gardens on the top of their office buildings. And it worked. It was a great success. So I thought, wow, we could do that. I've got uh, names of people and phone numbers from uh, across our county. Um, maybe I can start a uh, pollinator highway. So I took some money out of the grant. I went out and bought 120 trees, uh, three varieties of what are called larval hosts, um, which are trees that uh, caterpillars like to eat. And I took my list of those people who were the right people, quote unquote, and I sat down at my dining room table and I picked up the phone and I asked them if they wanted free trees. I also sent out flyers advertising free trees and, you know, true to human nature, everybody likes free stuff. So next thing I knew I had, um, I, I broke this into six pieces and I connected uh, six neighborhoods across our county with free trees and um, was driving around on Saturday mornings with my car stuffed with uh, trees coming out of my back window. <laughs> So Donna, um, Donna, when we think about pollinator pathways, you mentioned uh, looking at neighborhoods and talk about how our landscape has been chopped up and the whole like the root issue of having a pollinator pathway, how it helps our pollinators. Exactly. So I ended up with a ribbon of people that we mapped that were all connected that went from New York State to the Housatonic River. And uh, we are a fragmented landscape. We the, the large blocks of forest or open space that once used to support our wildlife no longer exist. We've, we've built roads, we've built houses, we've got strip malls, we've got actually lawns are fragmenting our landscape as are invasive species. So that connectivity is, is the key to helping our wildlife survive. When we look at a traditional neighborhood with the little square lawns or the rectangles, so explain for listeners who are thinking, maybe I could do this where I live. How do they start and what should they be thinking about uh, in terms of creating a pathway, Donna? 
Well, we keep our message really simple. Uh, we, we, meaning the pollinator pathway, ask people to do three things, plant native plants, to rethink their lawns, and to avoid the use of pesticides, meaning anything that would, you know, kill plants, insects, fun fungicides, anything like that. So um, it gives them lots of options, but I think the the most exciting piece is that we are uh, community-based. So it's not just the individual that does something. They are going to be part of a bigger movement within their town, whether it's uh, joining the library to plant a flower garden or to be part of a municipal uh, uh, push to plant native trees along the streets of a city. Uh, it, it's more than just one person doing something where they aren't communicating and talking with their neighbors. So it's, it's, it, it really generates a lot of energy. I'm glad you mentioned cities because that was my next question. So when we hear we hear people talk about their yards, we're thinking of people in the suburbs. But in terms of people who live in cities and how they can help pollinators, you mentioned uh, you know strips where areas of of native trees can be planted. But what are some other ways? Well, you have to remember this this whole initiative came out of urban um, uh, two urban projects, one in Seattle and one in Oslo, and. Um, what can people can do is to be on the pollinator pathway all you need is a six inch pot of native plants and set it out on your on your windowsill and you're on the pathway it's it's a completely scalable model and um, in cities you've got vacant lots where you can go in and plant some some uh, raised gardens perhaps um, there is that strip of lawn between the sidewalk and the and the street where you could possibly connect uh, with your neighbors to plant pollinator plants. So there's, it, it's really quite adaptable to urban areas. Uh, when we think about native plants, uh, can you name some that listeners uh, should think about uh, in their yards, Donna? Well, what I'm gonna do is ask people to go on to our website, pollinator-pathway.org. And we have all huge lists of uh, plant lists and garden plans and we even have uh, uh, instructions for planting planter boxes for your sidewalk uh, but what we suggest is if you're planting a pollinator garden to uh, to take three plants of three varieties and plant each of three varieties that bloom in the three seasons. So it's the three, three, three plan. So you'll have three pollinator native plants that bloom in spring, three that bloom in summer, and three that bloom in fall. And all of this is on our website. So uh, there's also uh, templates for designs that you can uh, put around your mailbox post at the end of your downspout in that little uh, corner between your uh, fence and your house. Uh, it, it's all pretty, um, uh, all that information is there. 
Well, it's good to hear from you, Donna Merrill. Again, the founder of Pollinator Pathways Northeast. We'll be sure to link to that website that you shared at ctpublic.org slash where we live. Again, Pollinator Pathways Northeast is a movement to coordinate contiguous stretches of pollinator-friendly habitats in our state. You're listening to Where We Live. Coming up, we'll hear more ways your lawn or windowsill can make way for native plants and help pollinators and why this is so important. Ecologist and Bringing Nature Home author Doug Tallamy joins us after the break. Do you have questions about helping to restore nature where you live? Join us, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Share a comment on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Green, prim, manicured longs have long been a symbol of wealth in America, often, often contrasted against, well, any other type of yard. The late Congressman John Lewis would tell a story about his childhood that touched on this contrast, describing a dirt lawn and providing a very real symbol of inequality in America. Let's take a listen. My aunt Eva lived in a shotgun house. She didn't have a green manicured lawn. She had a simple, plain dirt yard. Sometime at night, you can look up through the ceiling. Through the tin roof of this old house, you can count the stars. Lewis goes on to describe how his aunt's house barely weathered a harsh storm, drawing in a larger metaphor about the house we share called America. My next guest has launched a national initiative that he hopes will help dispel the green manicured lawn as a status symbol. On Zoom with us now is Doug Tallamy, an ecologist and a professor at the University of Delaware. He started Homegrown National Park, an initiative with the goal of converting half of America's privately owned green lawns into homes for native plants. Tallamy has written several books all geared towards boosting biodiversity in your yard. His latest is The Nature of Oaks. Doug, welcome to our show. Well, thank you, Lucy. Pleasure to be here. And listeners can join in as well if you have a question or if you've read some of Talamy's books, the number 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, so, 
So, Doug, we know that there are aesthetic values that people have in their minds when they have a big green lawn, but that's at odds with what's ecologically valuable. And so can you talk about um, what we are losing uh, when we continue to fixate on having a beautiful green lawn? Well, you know, we have a huge human footprint these days. So we're living everywhere, we're working everywhere, we're playing everywhere. And when we design landscapes that destroy ecosystem services, in the end, that's going to come back to bite us. Uh, there are four things that every landscape should accomplish. They should support a viable food web. In other words, support all of the animal life around us. Those are the things that run our ecosystems. They should support a diverse community of pollinators. They should, they should sequester uh, carbon pulling as much carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and locking it up in plant tissues and then pumping it into the soil. And every landscape has to manage the watershed in which it lies. Well, lawn is terrible at doing all of those things. And the more of your landscape you, you allocate to lawn, uh, the fewer pollinators you're gonna protect, the, the, uh, your food web typically collapses. The way we treat our lawns actually destroys watersheds. And lawn is the, turf grass is the worst choice in terms of sequestering carbon. So we can do better simply by shrinking the area we have in lawn. I'm not proposing we get rid of our, our lawn. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm starting with, the concept of cutting the area you have in lawn in half. Lawn is, is pretty, it is a cue for care and it shows that we are, we are managing our landscape, that we understand our cultural norms, but we don't need acres of it at, at each house. We, we can cut that area in half. You give many talks to community groups across the country and you've said that nature is on the ropes. And so given what we know and when we see the headlines about uh, North American birds on the decline, insects on the decline, are assumptions about the green lawn changing, Doug? Are you seeing that with groups that you speak with? Yeah, the, the very frightening headlines that we're seeing about global insect decline and we, we've lost three billion breeding birds in the last 50 years. Riding over here on NPR this morning, I heard that there are 14 species that have just been taken off the, the endangered species list, but they've been taken off because they're extinct. These are frightening headlines. The UN says we're going to lose a million species to extinction in the next 20 years. That's not an option. And people understand, they're beginning to understand that, and, and, but they have the idea that there's nothing an individual can do. My message is there is something each individual can do and start with shrinking, cutting that area of lawn in half and putting in the plants that actually run the ecosystems that support all of these, these animals as well as ourselves. Can you give us some examples when we think about nature and how uh, so much of it uh, relies on these specialized interactions between animals and plants? And when we don't have particular native plants in our yard, uh, how these species uh, uh, are diminished? Right. Uh, you know, a lot of people think all plants are equal in what they what they do. And I wish they were, because then we could use plants from anywhere and everything would be great. Plants capture the energy from the sun and they turn it into food and store it in their tissues. But if that energy doesn't move from the plant to an animal, then you don't have the animal. You have all the energy locked up in plants. Uh, well, plants really don't wanna be eaten. They wanna, they wanna capture the energy from the sun and use it for their own growth and reproduction. So they protect their, their tissues with nasty tasting chemicals. Uh, and typically, most vertebrates do not eat plants directly. They eat an invertebrate that ate the plant. And that invertebrate is typically an insect. 
Uh, and it turns out that caterpillars are transferring more energy from plants to other animals than any other type of insect. Well, remember, plants don't want to be eaten. So the caterpillars have to adapt to those defenses in order to be able to eat it. And they have to specialize on particular plant lineages in order to do that. They develop specialized enzymes and behavioral adaptations and life history adaptations. I use the monarch as an example all the time because it's a perfect example of a host plant specialist. You can have all the crepe myrtles and boxwoods and calorie pears and all the other Asian uh, plants that we landscape with in your landscape, but you won't make a single monarch butterfly unless you have milkweed. That's the only plant it can eat. So in developing the adaptations to eat milkweed, it locks itself into eating milkweed. It can't then start eating the crepe myrtle that you planted when you took the milkweed out. And that's true for 90% of the insects that eat plants. Again, you're hearing Doug Tallamy here on Where We Live. He's an ecologist and author of several books, including The Nature of Oaks, Bringing Nature Home and Nature's Best Hope. As we talk more about the benefits of, as Doug has suggested, you know, cutting your lawn in half and putting in native plants. Uh, Doug, when we talk about native plants, uh, you, you um, obviously talk and have written recently about the value of oak trees, but what other plants, uh, when we think about incorporating them into our yards, whether front or backyard, uh, what are some uh, good suggestions for our listeners? Well, we can divide plants into two groups, the woody plants and the herbaceous plants. Uh, in most areas of the country, oaks are number one in terms of supporting the, the life around us, but it's also followed very closely by native willows, uh, native, native cherries, uh, the genus Prunus. Our birches are very high. Cottonwoods are very high in the west. Uh, as you get up to the Pacific Northwest, of course, things like uh, uh, Douglas fir become very important. Um, the herbaceous plants that are best include goldenrod. And by the way, goldenrod does not make you sneeze. It's, that's ragweed that makes you sneeze. Our asters, our native asters are very good. It's supporting both, both specialist bees and caterpillars. Um, perennial sunflowers, uh, very important across uh, much of the country. Uh, so you can, you can focus on particular plant genera and really give the, the uh, animal life in your yard a boost. You can join our conversation if you have a question about how to begin, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Savannah's calling in from Lebanon. Savannah, go ahead. Hi. Good morning. I'm really into the program. Um, so I actually just graduated with a degree in ecological restoration from Paul Smith College. And my senior capstone was funny enough um, how turning these, you know, monocultured lawnscapes into meadows and how that affects invertebrate assemblages. And it's amazing how just by stopping, you know, mowing and adding a few native plants can really, really boost um, the invertebrates, which in turn affects everything else. And I actually read uh, Doug's book. It's called Nature's Best Hope. It breaks down very complicated and um, just incredibly difficult ecological themes into something that's palpable. And so actually after reading um, Nature's Best Hope, I managed to convince my mom of converting one acre of our four acre lawn into a meadow. And I'm actually there right now and uh, there's bees and it's just beautiful. And, you know, if you have an opportunity 
read any of Doug's books. They are just amazing, and I'm a huge fan. Thank you, Savannah, for your call. Doug, did you want to respond to her mom's approach, converting one acre out of the four acres on her property? Well, it's a it's a great start. It's a great start. I would also want to address those other three acres of lawn. And, you know, you don't have to do it by, by putting a meadow in. Uh, meadows are beautiful. They're really productive, but they're not particularly easy. I would start by just adding some trees. And underneath each tree, make a bed. If you add enough trees, you've really reduced the area of lawn. And of course, if you're adding the right trees, you're adding an, an awful lot of, of uh, biodiversity to your yard. Just to give you an example, oaks in, in the mid-Atlantic states support 557 species of caterpillars compared to a tulip tree that only supports 21, compared to a ginkgo from Asia that supports zero. So uh, there are huge differences in the ability of our, our different plants to support the wildlife around us. And, and making those, this, this is why I say plant choice, it's all about plant choice. Plant choice matters. Before we take some more calls, I wanted to focus on some of the things you just shared, Doug, including um, how meadows can be a start, but it can be difficult. And so talk about that, because we know that these no mow may um, trend has caught on. But the, the idea that sometimes if you leave a field uh, on its own, you know, invasives can also uh, um, become an issue. Yeah, that's for sure. It depends on where you live. But in the east, we get uh, so much rain that uh, meadows don't want to stay meadows. They want to move through succession and become forests. So they're constantly invaded by woody plants. Uh, and these days, uh, those plants especially are, are uh, those invasives. Remember, an invasive species is a non-native species that's aggressively displacing natives. So things like uh, porcelain berry and autumn olive and multiflora rose and bush honeysuckle and burning bush, none of those things are from this country. And they, they readily invade your meadow. So you have to constantly uh, spot treat to get, get rid of them. Um, creating your meadow is a challenge, particularly if you're starting with lawn, because lawn is really competitive. It's hard to get, if you start from seed, trying to get other seeds in there, the lawn will outcompete them. So you usually have to get rid of the lawn first. It's a challenge. There are people really good at it, but a lot of people think I'll just stop mowing and it'll turn into a beautiful meadow. And unfortunately, that's that's usually not the case. It'll turn into a tall, cool season European grass uh, uh, situation rather than a native meadow. You also mentioned having beds beneath trees and why that's important for caterpillars, Doug. Yeah. Uh, remember, most of the caterpillars are developing on the woody plants in our yards and they grow as caterpillars on the on the trees. But then in order to complete their development, they drop from the tree and they wiggle their way beneath the surface of the soil and, and turn into a pupa and typically spend the winter there. Or they spin a cocoon in the leaf litter that's under the tree. And I'll bet if you look out your window right now at the nearest tree, there is no leaf litter under that tree and there's probably not a bed either. Uh, we typically have lawn or uh, even worse, just bare ground. Uh, during the summertime, of course, it, you know, the, the soil gets sunbaked and rock hard and we mow it and, and compact it. So it's almost impossible for those caterpillars to get underground. And we end up creating ecological traps where the moths come in, lay, lay eggs in the trees at night and the, the caterpillars develop and then they drop down and die. I'm convinced that the way we landscape under our trees is, is one of the major causes of insect declines, not just in this country, but uh, throughout Eurasia as well. But it's easily fixed. 
put a, a bed under your tree. Uh, and, and the easiest way to start a bed is to, uh, when you're raking leaves in the fall, put them around your trees because that will suppress the grass growth. Then you can plant right through those, those uh, leaves. Leaf litter, by the way, is the very best way to mulch your trees. It returns the nutrients to the, to the tree. Uh, and it's a great place for those insects to overwinter. Plant a, uh, one of the ground covers like wild ginger or may apples or foam flower. There are lots of ground covers that, that would be appropriate under your trees. Or build a layered landscape, put some shrubs under there, some native azaleas, uh, native uh, viburnums, uh, witch hazel, dogwoods, all of these things that will build a layered landscape under your tree. And that becomes a perfect habitat for those caterpillars to complete their development. Again, you're hearing ecologist and author Doug Tallamy here on Where We Live as we talk about the importance of incorporating native plants in your yards. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, this is the perfect time to hear you talking about leaf litter because with autumn starting uh, just tomorrow, people are going to be uh, gearing up their uh, leaf blowers, but uh, to not be too obsessed with that very clean landscape because we need to help the pollinators, Doug? Yeah, of course, you know, the, the, the concept of lawn and leaves don't mix very well. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I try to convince people to think of the leaves on your property the same way we've started thinking about water. When it rains, we want to design a landscape so that none of that water runs off. We want to keep every drop on the property and have it infiltrate. Well, same thing with leaves. When those leaves fall, we want to keep every leaf on your property because the, the nutrients that your tree used that year are tied up in the, those leaves. So if you, if you rake them up and put them out to the curb or burn them or get rid of them in some other way, you've just thrown out all the nutrients that your tree needs for the following year. And if you do that year after year after year, you've depleted the soil. You realize that oaks, uh, a, an average lifespan for an oak is 900 years. Ours almost never live that long because of the way we treat them in our landscapes. We starve them, we, we bump them with our mowers, we chop off their roots. Uh, so if we, if we move to a little bit better uh, um, ecological landscaping, our trees will live a lot longer. And of course, all the things that, that uh, use that leaf litter uh, will be a lot happier. Leaf litter on the ground creates a blanket that protects the entire soil biota. We've got We've got more species and more individuals of animals under the soil than we have on top of the soil. It's a vibrant community when it's protected by leaf litter. Every one of those, those little creatures uh, require high humidity. And if the leaves aren't there, then the soil dries out. It gets sunbaked. You get a rainstorm and it erodes away. All kinds of nasty things happen. So keeping, keeping leaf litter on the forest floor is, is uh, vital for, for healthy ecosystems. But of course, lawns and, and leaves don't, don't match. So if you're cutting your lawn in half, all the other areas can have leaves on them and then you plant again through them. Lawn is a great cue for care. So you, you wanna manicure the lawn that you keep. You wanna mow it and, and conform to all of the, the neighborhood standards. It'll look great. And it outlines the areas that you're actively gardening. So you won't, that's why I don't say, well, just stop, stop mowing because then it does look messy and people think you've moved out. Um, having a mower's width of, of grass along your sidewalk or your, your driveway. And it shows that everything beyond that, that width of grass is a planned landscape. 
So grass does have a very important ecological function. It's also the perfect plant to walk on. So wherever you're walking through your landscape, that's where the lawn should go. Right. I want to take some calls now. Mary's calling in from Hartford. Mary, go ahead with your comment. Thanks so much for your awesome research, um, Doug. And I do have a question about uh, many people uh, stump grind their trees when they fall or when they the trees become too close to their house. Um, my observation is, is that if you don't stump grind the tree, that if you allow the roots to uh, sucker up or come up, that you'll ha- have a faster growing tree. And then if you maybe set aside areas in your lawn not to mow, um, seeds will come up. The squirrels planted them. They fell from the, the, the indigenous trees. And that those trees will actually grow faster. Um, this is somewhat related to the research from the Hidden Life of Trees. Um, could you comment on that? Well, everything you just said is true. Uh, it, we we stump grind for aesthetic reasons. I would I would suggest that if you're taking down a tree because it's too close to the house and you're worried about it falling on the house, to cut it high, maybe 10, 15 feet, so that you actually have a trunk standing there, not just the stump. And that becomes a, a an excellent uh, resource for all of the tree hole nesting birds that we have in this country. I think there's something like 84 species of birds that nest in tree holes. And there's a shortage of tree hills wherever we humans go because we cut out all the all the dead wood. There's also a shortage of what we call coarse woody debris. That's simply dead wood logs laying on the ground. And I know that doesn't work in, in the front yard, but there could be areas in the backyard where that works really well. That's where the salamander lives. It's under those, those pieces of wood. A lot of native bees nest in, in uh, dead and rotting wood. They tunnel it out and that's where their nests are. So when we clean up to the point where there's none of that stuff, we've eliminated the option for a lot of species in our yard. James is calling in from West Hartford. James, go ahead. Yeah, hi. Um, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I think it's a really interesting conversation um, and I applaud your work. I just wanted to, um, to share a couple of experiences I've had. I moved in about six years ago to a house that had dead crabgrass in front of it and the soil was just like powdered dirt and nothing else would grow. So I got rid of the crabgrass, started amending the soil and now I have um, sort of permaculture, uh, what I'll call it, which is a you know, mix of uh, decoratives and edibles, um, organic, uh, support several different kinds of edible cherries and other berries. Um, planting mostly heirloom seeds, so that way the seeds will regenerate. Um, I have a healthy crop of uh, echinacea, which the finches love, and sunflowers, which get replanted every year by squirrels and, and other birds. Um, and it's, um, it's a great learning for my kids as well, because they can walk outside and pick a cucumber out of the front yard or cherry tomatoes on their way in from the car. And... Um, it's all organics, healthy, and they understand where their food comes from. Yeah, I, I think that's that's wonderful. Um, of course, growing food locally eliminates all the costs of moving it all over the world. Uh, so there's great benefits there. You get to control what pesticides, if any, are on your food. Another huge benefit, because when you buy it from someplace else, you don't know what's what's happened to that. And I love the example of, of, of uh, providing an educational experience for your kids. 
um, we need to reconnect our kids with, with the natural world, not just to understand where their food comes from, but to understand it's the natural world that supports us. And right now, you know, uh, I, I don't want to. I don't want to bash the media, but most of the the stories we hear about nature are are frightening ones. It's going to kill us somehow. We're going to get Zika virus and die, and and the the murder hornet's going to kill us. Something terrible <laughs> is going to happen. Uh, and so many people are afraid to go outside because of those terrible things. Most of it's hogwash. Uh, you can go out and you can you can watch the echinacea, watch the pollinators on there, watch how it happens, count the number of species. Find that, that cecropia caterpillar on your local cherry tree. It's fascinating. That'll hook kids into, into developing a personal relationship with the natural world, which will enable them to become good stewards when they grow up. We've got, <laughs> we have a shortage of good stewards on this planet. Uh, so so we, we certainly need to get our kids in tune with nature and help them understand why they need to steward, help them love stewarding the, the natural world. And the best way is to have them go out in their yard and learn what it is. You're hearing ecologist and author Doug Tallamy here on Where We Live. Both Doug and our caller James mention echinacea, also known as coneflowers, a great uh, plant to have in your yard uh, to attract those uh, birds and also other pollinating insects. We're going to continue talking right after the break, and we'll take your calls too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. You've seen the headlines. We've talked about it on the show. One third of a North American birds have disappeared. Insect populations around the world are dying too. My guest, ecologist Doug Tallamy, says individuals can help just by changing how we landscape where we live. Doug is our guest today. He's on Zoom. Again, he's behind Homegrown National Park to encourage Americans to replace part of their lawns with native plants. So Doug, talk more about this initiative. I understand there's a map online and people can engage that way. Yes. Uh, go to our website, homegrownnationalpark.org. We're talking about getting yourself on the map. It's a map of the United States. The object is to well, it, the entire concept started by uh, one day, years ago, actually, I was thinking about the amount of acreage we have in lawn. Uh, in 2005, it was uh, 40 million acres. That's the size of New England, dedicated to essentially an ecological deadscape. So I said, well, what would happen if we cut that area in half? If everybody cut their lawn in half, that would give us 20 million acres to work with in terms of conservation. And if we do it at home, we can create a new national park that we can call a homegrown national park. And I started wondering, well, how big is 20 million acres? And I started adding up all the major national parks in the country, Yosemite, Yellowstone, all of them. It's less than 20 million acres. So homegrown national park would be the biggest park in the country. And it would happen in, in our homes by cutting that, that area of lawn in half. I'm not big on, on social media. So, um, I you know, talked about it in my talks, wrote about it in my books, but I never actually started an initiative to get people to do this. Uh, but I met a woman uh, about a year and a half ago, Michelle Alfandari, came to one of my talks. She's a businesswoman from uh, New York City, knew nothing about gardening, but, but she said, you know, you've got, to, you've got to get beyond the choir. 
I said, I know, I just don't know how to do that. And she said, well, I know how to do that. And I'm going to create this, this, this tool for you, this website uh, and uh, the map function. And it'll be a social media success. Everybody will get on the map. They can watch the map light up. They can watch the corridors uh, fill in, watch us reach that goal of, of 20 million acres, feel like they're part of a movement that is accomplishing something. And it's going to spread because of social, social uh, uh, everybody want to belong to this. I said, great, <laughs> do it. Uh, and she is. Uh, we, we now, it's, it's not very old. Uh, I don't know, I guess it's been up about nine months. We've got 10,000, uh, almost 10,500 people on the map. And I know we've got to have 10,500,000 people on the map for this to, to work in a big way. But we're getting going. Uh, and uh, um, I don't know, that's, that's what it's all about. Uh, so we, we talk about putting your information on the map and the area that you're going to convert to uh, some kind of a native planning or already have, you're protecting in some way. And we will see that 20 million acres fill in. Gail Reynolds is calling in. She's a coordinator for UConn's Master Gardener program, and she works to incorporate native plants into the curriculum. Gail, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. And I'm, um, you know, what, what Doug has said, I've, I'm I'm not an entomologist or or a birder. I'm I'm an ecologist and botanist, and I've been living that life for for years and years. And when I first um, started to work with the Master Gardener program, we talked about invasive plants, but we didn't really talk much about native plants or what you know their place in the landscape. And that's that's definitely changed through the years. And um, I'm, I give the lectures, the modules on, on natives, non-natives, and invasives. And what I try to start with saying, okay, gardener, you know, you probably think you're the center of the gardening universe, but maybe you're not. And talk to them about reasons for gardening. Mm -hmm. You know, is it aesthetics? Maybe you want to create habitat. And some people just don't realize that a butterfly bush, you know, it might make your butterflies like drunk with nectar, but it really isn't, doesn't provide habitat or other, other um, things to sustain our native invertebrate population. And so over the years, I, I have seen the change. And, um, and now um, also we, um, each um, county extension center takes questions from the public, we do this for free, and we have many more people asking about, well, you know, how can I plant a meadow, which, as Doug said, isn't as easy as it seems. Um, it does require work. Or, you know, how can I get rid of my lawn? Or, how, you know, how can I, you know, get monarchs to come? But um, we still have plenty of calls of people who, um, you know, want to know how they can make their lawns better. Um, and, you know, sometimes we try to slip in, well, maybe you might want to consider something else, um, you know, like expanding your garden beds or planting some natives. But, you know, it's, it's a slower process. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, but I can see change. And with my students, um, I can see some people really wake up and, 
really start to plant lots of natives. And, you know, then I feel very satisfied as an instructor and a proponent of, of native plants and native ecosystems. Well, thank you, Gail, for calling in, and it's so great to hear from the Master Gardener Program. It's a, a really a wonderful program here in Connecticut. Doug, uh, I wanted to go back to you because something she'd said about a butterfly bush and, you know, what I like about your approach is you, you talk about compromise. And so if, if people like butterfly bush, is it okay to still plant that, but then also make sure you have other native plants that are the habitat for these pollinating insects? Right. It's, it's, it's confusing. Here's a bush called the butterfly bush. Surely it's going to help butterflies. Well, it does provide a lot of nectar, but it's not the host plant for any butterflies. So if everybody only plants butterfly bush, you end up with no butterflies. You've got to have the larval host plant, which in many cases is, is a woody plant. Things like black cherry, uh, they host a number of species of butterflies. Uh, so, so having butterfly bush uh, does provide nectar, but it doesn't provide any larval host plants. The other problem with butterfly bush is that it is showing tendencies to become invasive. And that means it spreads beyond where you, you plant it. It's a major invasive problem in the Pacific Northwest. It's a major invasive problem in a number of our restorations in the, in the East. Uh, and what that means is here's a plant that is replacing the native plants that do support the insects, that do support the birds with a plant that doesn't. That's the problem with invasive species. Any plant from another continent is typically very poor at passing on its, its energy. Uh, so, you know, uh, butterfly bush is certainly not our worst invasive, uh, and it's a beautiful plant, and I understand that. You mentioned compromise. We did a study in, in D.C., the suburbs of Washington, D.C., that suggests you can have up to 30% of your woody plant biomass non-native, as long as it's not invasive, uh, remember, not all non-natives are, are invasive. Uh, and that would leave 70% of your woody plant biomass native. If you do that, you can have a viable food web that supports the birds. If you go beyond 30% of your, your plant biomass uh, non-native, then the food web collapses and the chickadee and everybody else can't breed in your yard. But that's it. That's an opportunity for compromise, which is great because if my message was you can't have any non-natives, there'd be very few people listening. We love our non-natives, but remember, it's not the non-natives that destroy the food web. It's the absence of natives that destroys a food web. So if we get more natives back into our yards and the lawn is a great place to put them, we can sustain the life around us a whole lot better than we're doing right now. I love that ratio. Think about it as a 30% non-native, 70% uh, native. Uh, Michelle's calling in. We just have a few minutes, Michelle, quickly with your question. Hello, can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Oh, um, Doug, I went to an invasive species um, workshop the other day, and, uh, of course, I understand that invasive species can over-compete with native plants. Um, most of what was spoken of was cutting and digging, but we got into the woody plants, and the question became, uh, about cut and paste, the use of an herbicide to cut and um, after you cut to apply the herbicide to be more assured that the plant will not reproduce, especially the application in the fall. Um, whenever I mention herbicide to any of the, my friends, they shudder. Um, what is your take on uh, eliminating uh, invasive woody plants with the use of an herbicide in the 
Doug, go ahead. Well, you, in order to do that, you have to kill the plant roots. And the easiest way to do that is using an herbicide. I think of herbicides uh, with invasives. Uh, the analogy I use is, is chemotherapy. Uh, these invasive plants are tumors that are running around our ecosystem. And if we don't do anything, they, they kill the ecosystem. So the, the herbicides, you know, they're nasty. We, we want to minimize their use, but used properly, they can kill that tumor and help restore the, the ecosystem. So the, the, um, the outcome of not using any herbicide is worse than using the herbicide itself. That's how, how I view it. Uh, we're almost out of time, Doug, uh, but when we think about just some of the conversation we've had today, the uh, callers and their comments and questions, are you hopeful? Are you optimistic that we're getting to a point where we're thinking about our local landscapes and how our yards can be both beautiful and functional to, to help our pollinators? I am. I am hopeful. What we're trying to do is change the culture. We're trying to convince people that the old model of humans here and nature someplace else is no longer working. There's not enough someplace else's anymore. So we now need to coexist with the natural world. And we're looking for ways to do that effectively. But when I tell people there is something you can do to stop this extinction crisis that we're facing, they get excited. Uh, a lot of people are very much into that. Um, and I've been talking about it for 15 years now. I definitely see that that needle moving. So, yes, I'm encouraged. Well, it's been wonderful to hear from you, Doug Tallamy, again, ecologist and author. He's behind Homegrown National Park to encourage Americans to replace part of their yards with native plants. His latest book is The Nature of Oaks. Doug, thank you for your time today. Well, thanks for the opportunity. Really appreciate it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today was Katie Pellico's first show producing for Where We Live. We're so happy to have her on the team. Special thanks to Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Coming up tomorrow, we're going to talk more about how Connecticut residents are working to help Afghans escape the Taliban and restart their lives in the U.S., including in our state. We'll hear from local veterans who served in Afghanistan who are helping with these efforts. And if you have a question about how to help, Make sure you join us tomorrow.